and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. How are you doing, Tom? I'm doing very well, Ben. I've had a lovely weekend. I walked all the way from, um, well, I walked over Beachy Rost- Head. Rostov to Moscow. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> I walked over Beachy Head, Seven Sisters, uh, all that part during this heat wave. And uh, it was really rather lovely. Uh, I don't normally do long, long walks like that. I was very worried about the dogs, though, Ben. There, some people had dogs there, and the, those cliffs are genuinely right in front of your nose, and you disappear. You, you were worried about, about the dogs chasing you off the cliffs or, or the dogs <laughs> like lemmings over the cliff? I was more worried about the dogs themselves falling over the cliff. Most of them oh, were on leads. Most of them were on leads, but there's no obvious indication that there's a sheer drop there and i'm sure i'm sure dogs run off are you campaigning for safety rails to be erected tom because this, uh, this sounds quite <laughs> quite for safety rails woke. no no health and safety political cri- no okay escalators, escalators. that's that's what i'm campaigning <laughs> for <laughs> escalators up and down the seven sisters uh, <laughs> uh, but you doing all right ben well, yes. Yeah, so I, I spent most of Saturday just refreshing Twitter, um, watching the, uh, the the aborted uh, coup, mutiny, civil war, whatever that was. Um, so I studied ah, a lot yeah. of Russian history as a student. So, um, it, it, you know, that there's nothing new under the sun. But I think particularly in Russia, um, you know, it's, it's, it's all of the same ingredients in 1917 to 1921 to 1991 to the present days. So it's all the same stuff, yeah. basically, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's uh, that really is moving news, and it's moving very fast. So, so the main point. Um, this isn't the main point from Saturday, but it was so noteworthy how behind events the BBC was. Um, and if you wanted to see what what was going on, um, you know, you're on Twitter, refreshing Twitter. You're looking at what. Um, that's interesting the open source intelligence people are, are saying and of course it's a little bit less reliable and, and you get um you know that there, there was a report at some point that there'd been an airstrike on a, on a military headquarters and there was sort of footage of crowds running away from it and that turned out not to have been true so you, you do get um you're getting the raw unfiltered information and some of it then turns out not to be right um but the flip side of that is you're is you're getting everything basically as it happens without it having to be um sort of churned through the the sort of bbc newsroom mm. um and so you know it felt like at some points the bbc were perhaps an hour an hour and a half behind what what was going on um and so just you know gone are the days of wanting to know what's going on in the world um and putting on the six o'clock news or even bbc news 24 because you, you you're just not going to be so up to the minute in the so way we that worry want. about Twitter all the time from a free speech perspective, but it's obviously got some positives as well. I, as, I, as you know, Ben, I, I try to keep away from it because it is such a, an yeah. emotional place and it's such an irrational place. But wow, that, that, that's something I hadn't fully appreciated in, in moments of crisis. Well, yeah, that's it. So, so for breaking news events, um, you know, as with the Capitol riots, things like that, where things are happening very, very quickly, mm. um, that there's no substitute really for, for Twitter. And I feel very ambivalent about it as a platform as well. And I, and I think that um, in many ways it's to blame for lots of the, the problems that, that we're contending with at the Free Speech Union that, that people have in society now. Yeah. Um, you know, lots of the, the sort of American um, ultra-progressive works, you know, obviously that, that's 
percolated through Twitter and and um, crossed the English speaking world. So, mm. it, it but it, but it, you know that's the medium in which the, these things are communicated. But on on those big news days when those big events are going on and unfolding in real time, um, it's uh, it's very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I missed that. I don't think I could pick up anything at the top of Beachy Head. I'm afraid. Ben, and it's quite ha- that's probably quite good because <laughs> one doesn't want to go having running off Petri Head when you hear you know, <laughs> that something's gone wrong elsewhere in the world. So we should uh, head into our first item, I think, then Ben, which is has been all over the news, and I, I wonder whether there'll be some weariness about it. In fact, um, amongst our listeners, because it's been all over the newspapers, it's been all over the uh, various media outlets, and it's this, uh, it's this. Um, cat situation do you want to do you want to go over that um and uh, describe or explain how we're thinking about that yes so this is the story at rye college that has been uh in the papers now for a week and a half now we're in a slightly strange situation because the free speech union is helping um the mother of one of the daughters concerned but for those who haven't seen the story uh, what happened was that um, a, a pretty uh, heated, pretty, uh, I think it's fair to say, unpleasant uh, conversation took place between two teenage girls in a classroom with their teacher, uh, in which the two children were, among other things, branded as being uh, despicable uh, for their view, the gender critical view, as it's called in law, um, that you cannot change your biological sex so obviously that's a view that the vast majority of of the public hold um and it's something that is 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 being bitterly contested and it's taken years to win the right for people to hold that view um and for that to be protected and enshrined in law um and just before we started recording this episode another case um has has cleared that threshold and 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 afforded further protection this is the case of denise farmy i think we'll be talking about next time um so gender critical beliefs are protected increasingly but it's been a it's been a bloody difficult struggle for individual people um individual women with cases to 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 get us to that point and these two girls are in a situation where they're expressing these views and one of the factors going on here that is terrifying and bizarre, um, absolutely absurd, is that um, they there is a pupil at this school who had identified as a cat. And in the course of, of the, the sort of media frenzy around this story, it turned out that many schools across Britain were dealing with situations where pupils were identifying as animals or inanimate objects. Uh, including one child who reportedly identified as the moon. I don't know if that's a moon or the moon, um, but in, in any case, so th- there, there is obviously, it's, it's I think well known, well known now that there has been this endemic, this this social contagion of um, trans identification, um, but it's but it's going far beyond that now, um, and some of it must be people's taking the proverbial. Um, winding teachers up you know there must be some of that um, but maybe quite a lot of it is genuine as well and so there, there's been this um, the response to this story has been I think it's fair to say for most people 
horror at the state that, uh, that these schools have got into and the fact that teachers are hectoring pupils about this if they don't go along with it, that, that children are, are being placed in a position where these issues are not being treated impartially, um, but where they're, they're being taught one biased, you know, frankly unscientific, nonsensical view. Um, and it, as I said, we're helping we're helping mm. the mother of one of these peoples in this case. Um, so I won't go too much into the particulars of, of, of what's going on at the moment. Um, hopefully um, we'll be able to talk about it um, with a good out, good outcome in a future episode. Um, but it, it's, been, it's been very alarming, I think, particularly if you've got parents of school age or, as in my case, uh, you know, will we'll be of school age soon. Mm. Um, very alarming. Well, I think absolute horror is the right word. Ben, because frankly, uh, no one, well, some people did, but but we, people weren't really aware just how far this had got. And of course, um, when I was hearing this being debated, some people were saying, well, no, this is this, you know, this is, must be an isolated case or, or whatever. Well, this is the one that was recorded. This is the one, this is the one that some child was brave enough to, to record the situation. And, and that's why we know about it. Um, uh, just as you know, a couple of things occurred to me. First of all, when Pink Floyd back in, I guess it was the seventies, we're talking about children. You know, the, the, in the wall, we don't need no education, we don't need no thought control, no dark sarcasm in the classroom. Teacher, leave the kids alone. We'd, I'd love dark sarcasm in the classroom, Ben, rather than this. Even Pink Floyd um, could never have imagined that this would be uh, what the, our own kids are having to contend with. Um, I, I don't, I never have a problem with a sarcastic teacher, but I have a problem with a teacher who berates a child for, for a lack of reality or, or sorry, berates a child for being more in the real world than these ideas about cats and moons and, and all the, all the other concepts. Um, and I think we're not calling it cat gate. Is that right? We're calling it cat flap. <laughs> yes. I'm calling I, it cat flap. The, the, yes, I can take the credit or the blame for that that coinage. I think I, I rather um, like that. Yes, I rather so, like that. So, so this, this cat flap saga um, has has unearthed the you know really troubling state of what's going on in schools. From the teachers' point of view, there has been a, a lack of guidance about how to approach things. Teachers are afraid of being you know fired for discriminating against a trans people or a, or a people who identifies as the moon um, and and schools have really been left in the lurch about how to handle this that is now changing the government is putting out guidance uh about issues of um self id and parental consent and parental notification and all the rest of it um it was reported in the in the telegraph over the weekend there's there's a bit of a fight going on about what exactly that guidance is going to say um, but there will be something for teachers, schools, head teachers to uh, to rely upon. But in this case, it's already the case that teachers must treat politically contentious issues in an impartial way, uh, that it's not acceptable for a teacher to take a, a politically partisan view. And we talked about some of these issues when we were discussing the case of Anna Thomas in the civil service. Um, the FSU won that case for her. Um, and one of the issues there was about civil service impartiality. And you can take a very narrow view of that impartiality and say, well, it, it can't be anything that supports the Labour Party or the Conservative Party or whatever. Or you can take a broader view and say it should be that that should encompass anything that is 
politically or philosophically controversial. So the idea that a child can socially transition, that they can live their their life uh, as a different gender, mm. uh, and that their parents are not told about that transition, mm. that is obviously something that is hugely contentious politically, philosophically. Um, so it's not it's not a sort of partisan issue. It's not, it's it's not political in that sense quite. Um, but it is contentious, and so teachers should be treating it in an impartial way. I do feel for teachers. I mean, this has all happened so quickly, and uh, sort of seemingly for, for for many of us who are finding out about these things, come out of nowhere. And teachers are in the, are now in the heart of that of that battle and that war. And I think they are probably gasping out for some more clarity, some more frameworks that say, well, this is how you need to deal with the issue of trans, first and foremost, you know, transgenderism in the classroom. And, you know, head, heads, head teachers inevitably have gone to the, the usual suspects, whether that's uh, Stonewall or, or the mermaids to get their guidance. Um, and as we've spoken before, they are very, very political organizations and so with they are they are, they 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 i would presume most teachers would want this guidance but the devil's going to be in the detail uh what i worry most about is this sort of separation this um division between teachers uh, uh sorry parents and their children you know, somehow these things have happened without parents being aware and, and we talk a lot about uh george orwell's 1984 don't we ben we've quoted that I don't know how many times, but I'll be honest with you. When I read this, this rather reminded me of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, the other great dystopian novel from the first half of the 20th century, where there the alphas, the betas, the gammas, the deltas and the epsilons are conditioned from birth uh, to be uh, loyal to the state and to eliminate any familial ties. So the idea of the language around family and the ideas around family are considered anathema and are considered uh, abhorrent. And that dystopian view in this particular context is the one that really sort of came to mind. The sort of the, the philosophy that we're seeing playing out in the classrooms is trying to separate teachers uh, from, the, sorry, children from their parents. And teachers are putting themselves in this position between them. As I say, I feel for teachers. But some activist teachers who have kind of got in there as well are putting themselves between children and their own parents. And I think that is that is an extremely worrying trend and that will never end well. I remember when I was 16 uh, doing my A-levels, I was, you know, my class was taught about the, the blank slate view of human nature on which all of this trans ideology is, is predicated in part. Yeah. Um, but I, I just cannot imagine that back then a teacher would have would have said, "This is a view some people have of human nature." Um, oh, but it's correct, and all of that. There is no other opinion. This this is the this is the only view you can hold and still be a decent person. That people are blank slates and are socially conditioned in any way that that we want them to be or you want to be. Um, we we were taught both sides of the debate, and you know, back in in the two thousands in America, but and before that, all the battles about the teaching of um, intelligent design and evolution, and so on. Um, and there there was the mantra at that point of of teach the debate. I mean, in scientific terms, there is no debate in that question, um, but it seems perfectly reasonable in some settings for um, for a teacher to say, well, this is the view that some people have of 
human nature they have this idea of gender that's different to biological sex um, and a view that you can change your gender other people reject that or they reject that distinction entirely um you know that that seems reasonable but but i don't see that in a in a scientific classroom in a scientific context um again as as with intelligent design versus evolution there is no debate there there is only there is only one scientific view and if the scientific evidence changes if new evidence is discovered by all means teach that debate um but it but in science there's no there's no issue here there's no there's no point that's being contested you you can teach it in other contexts that people have a different view of of human nature and that there are a variety of opinions available about that um but the idea that people's being hectored and hounded for uh for their for their scientifically correct view of this i mean it 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 it, it made me think immediately of um of galileo it still moves yeah it still moves you you know you can you can force me to recant it whatever you can uh, expel me from the school but it still moves yeah yeah you can you can accuse me of wrong think but the facts are the facts and and they're not they're not going anywhere um so yeah when you were saying that it did remind me of of the the, the curiosity of science sometimes that, that as we know the great theories of science are theories um utterly backed up generally with with evidence and facts and, and experiments uh but even the theories get get evolved in the hardest of science it's science so newtonian mechanics evolves uh when um einsteinian relativity and general mechanics come into come into being so even in the, the hardest of sciences you know in a sense the the debate is yeah. never quite op- over uh, which i think is interesting so then in a very very soft science and i even put the word science in inverted commas these social sciences where the ideas like critical race theory where these ideas like transgender transgender ideology have come from i, I would hesitate to put the word science around them but if if theories can change in the world of science and evolve then my goodness me, in soft sciences, all the more, this is not something that's definitive. This is not something that is debate, um, not debatable. The debate must continue. Uh, and we call it, you know, and it depends on your stage of education, but the whole thrust of education should be to teach people to think. And yes, there's an exchange of facts from you know, the mind of the teacher to the mind of the child in the classroom, without a doubt. And that's an important part, but it's also about uh, teaching people to think. I find it ironic, Ben, because there was this move away from teaching facts. You know, that was the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, teaching rote, uh, whether that was a language or whatever. And in history, for example, going back to primary sources and instead of teaching the facts, teach the kids to think for themselves. Well, what's happened? Have we then kind of completely reverse that around and we've got a whole different set of facts that are going that are being clunked down on the table in front of children it's it's very strange one of the strange things about one of the many strange things about this case is that there is a recording of this entire conversation that's in the public domain well, i say conversation i mean it's not a conversation really it's the teacher telling these two pupils off basically for their opinions and for their parents opinions as well um, but despite the fact there's this recording there's still been this attempt um there's an article in byline times for example to sort of push back against the whole story and just to reject the narrative um and 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 to attempt to sort of write the whole thing off and what it made me think of was and I hope this doesn't sound too much of a of a overexcitable or overwrought comparison. But in the 1920s and 1930s, there were lots of um, 
communist or communist leaning intellectuals who just flat out refused to accept reports of what was going on in Russia under Lenin and Stalin because they couldn't accept the end point, the logical end point, the logical consequences of their theories. And so lots of, of you know, Western communist academics, mm. journalists, and so on, um, would just refuse to accept reports of what was going on in the Ukraine as it was then as it then would have been called, um, or reports of the purges or the extent of of repression under Stalin. Um and I mean, it's 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 a trivial case by comparison, mm. but I think something similar is at work here, where you have people who are very much on board with trans ideology, but who can't, they just flat out cannot accept or deal with the logical consequences of their position, i.e. that if you think human beings can change their gender, it, it doesn't really follow that they can't also change their race mm. or that they can't change their self self-conception to identify as the moon or something else all of these claims if you if you take the scientific gender critical view um all of these claims are basically equally nonsensical um and and so they have to sort of they have to cut this off somewhere they mm. they have to say well um you know that can't really have happened there can't really be pupils identifying as cats because that's the sort of implicit endpoint in their view and it and it's obviously absurd there's a cognitive dissonance, I think, there, yeah. that, that, that somehow, yeah, they, 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 they want to do the right thing. They've been persuaded that, that accepting people, being kind, uh, all yeah. the things we've talked about in previous episodes are virtuous. And then on the other side, there's absurdity. So that you want to be on, on the right side of history. You want to be a nice person. But there's an absurdity that's coming out of that particular outworking of it. And different parts of the organization, the organization, different parts of the movement are um, seeing it, and others, others, others are not. And and the question I think that raises is is how much is true cognitive dissonance, where people are just incapable at this stage of of marrying the fact this is going down a wrong road while they're trying to do the right thing, versus people who probably know that but are still just mm. doing it anyway because that that is wrong i think if if you push something that you know is wrong and crazy um just because you don't want to look bad or you don't want to don't want to feel that um you were wrong in the past well that's just that's just wrong but but the, the, then i think there are other people who haven't got there yet who who haven't who haven't seen it for what it is and unfortunately it's not just school pupils who are being hectored by teachers this is of course going on has been going on for a long time in the world of work and you want to talk about the nspcc mm. don't you next yes yes so um <laughs> i think it was two episodes ago three episodes ago we mused at the end of the episode about uh, we'd been talking about oxfam and we were asking the question what on earth is going on at oxfam and as we talked um we got to the point of saying well what are the cha big charities you know well-known beloved charities might be um going down a similar route and sadly uh it's only taken us two weeks to be able to have another charity cross our path in this case the nspcc so there was a an article in the telegraph uh, this week um where it, it came out that the nspcc so this is the national society for the prevention of cruelty to children um uh and it's actually the only children's charity with statutory powers to take 
action to protect at-risk children. So anyway, the NSPCC has arranged sessions for staff uh, run by the internal LGBT group that's called PRIDE. In uh, It's called PINCC, Pride in the NC- NSPCC's Colleagues and Children. Anyhow, a whistleblower within the NSPCC uh, revealed what had been going on in one of the training sessions. So amongst other things, the trainer told staff that it was disgusting uh, that teachers will soon be required by the government to tell a child's parents if they are identifying as another gender at school. Interesting uh, similar language there to the previous item we were just discussing, Ben. Um, trainers also said that uh, uh, NSPCC staff should all hope that a proposed law change in Scotland um, is adopted UK-wide. This was a, uh, a law change that would enable people from 16 years old to get a gender recognition certificate without a medical diagnosis for gender dysphoria. Uh, one slide in this presentation, said that most people don't identify as entirely one thing or the other from a sexuality point of view. For example, most people don't define themselves as 100% straight. However, that directly contradicts, uh, I think it's the 2021 census, which said that 89.4% of people in England and Wales identified as exclusively heterosexual. Uh, That's fairly overwhelming. (laughs) So... um, and, and another slide pointed pointed uh, members of staff towards the Mermaids website, which then included some very bad mathematics. I think it said that uh, uh, um, 12 people represented 0.2% of the population. Well, that would make Britain <laughs> fairly, fairly you know, tiny. You know, I know that's wrong. <laughs> Even you know that's wrong, Ben. So, you know, what... what what we're seeing is another charity that's swallowed the cool that's drunk the Kool-Aid effectively and has come along and, and putting on these training sessions for staff and has driven one staff member to the point of saying, in despair, I, I have to I have to speak out about this and, and talk about this to the outside world. Um and this this whistleblower said these folks and the NSPCC, these these people have been 100% captured by Stonewall. And of course, Stonewall has been ditched by government departments, Stonewall's been ditched by the BBC, by by Channel 4, uh, and by all sorts of others um, over its impartiality concerns. So, Ben, it raised the question for me. Um, First of all, it, it obviously put me in a state of despair that we have another large charity so soon after in the hot on the heels of Oxfam um, kind of going down this rather strange uh, route. Raise the question, there's been so much negative press around Stonewall uh, and yet and yet it seems still to have such a hold over charities, companies, the government in different kinds of ways still, despite it being ditched from from parts of the government. Um, And I was wondering why that is. Now, I I do have some ideas about why that is, but I I just wondered what your thoughts were on that, Ben. Why 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 has Stonewall still got such a grip on this whole area? Well, I think it's the the conflation of the um, lesbian, gay, bisexual with trans um and that that muddies the waters um and i think sort of soft progressive managerial type people um 
the 60s generation, dare I say, <laughs> uh, don't want to be seen as being on the wrong side of history. Yeah. And so there is this afterglow that Stonewall still just about possesses um, for it, its being on the quote-unquote right side of history. Um, and so it still has some residual capital from that that people who haven't got the time or inclination to investigate it properly find persuasive. Um, and th there's just this idea, I think, that the trans movement is just as valid as the gay rights movement, just as valid as the American civil rights movement, um, and ought to be just as non-contentious as those movements now are, yeah. um, certainly in Britain. Um, and I think that that's that's what it is. And so the wool is pulled over people's eyes and, and we get to this sort of situation where you you go to work for you know, what's billed as training and instead you're hectored about and lobbied basically is the word it, mm. you know this is not this is not politically impartial you're being you're being lobbied you're being told that this is what all decent people should think i wish i shared your optimism ben because you used you used words there like afterglow of stonewall um and it's just about hanging in there as i was thinking about this i think it's worse than that i don't think i don't think there is an afterglow i think stonewall remains front and center of everything to do with LGBT, and it, and I can't see actually how it's going to be. And I'll tell you why. Stonewall is at the very epicenter of the whole ecosystem, whereby you're. When I, what do I mean by an ecosystem? I think about Stonewall itself. Then I think about various community groups that might have um, an LGBT spin whether that's sports groups or social groups or, or, or whatever they might be, they will always go to Stonewall. I think about the corporate world, um, and they will always go to Stonewall. But then right at the bottom, you've also got, or the top, you've got politicians. So I'll give you an example. I am currently swimming this week in, as you know, because we're recording slightly later than normal, I'm swimming in a huge competition. It's called Igler. It's a gay competition. And I looked at the program I was handed yesterday and the number of organisations at the back of that, it includes the, the Mayor of London, Pride in London, the Olympic Park, Better, which is the largest health provider of facilities, Swim England, the regulator of swimming in England. You know, I, I, could go, I could go on and on and on, but there are corporates in there, there are groups, uh, there are sports governing body, bodies, there are, um, uh, you know, politicians that... They're all linked together in such an intricate way now that picking it apart is going to be very, very hard. And I even went to another website of another network, and again, they say we're giving everything to Stonewall. We're supporting Stonewall. So dislodging Stonewall out of this whole ecosystem, especially with, with you know, the mayor of London, and, and think about what the politicians want to do. They just want to do things that are going to annoy the government or the other side. So for them, they just want to, get a, they want to get a point against the other side. The best way to do that is if one side of the political debate is, is trying to cancel Stonewall or, or, or shut them down, the other side of the political debate is going to try and raise up Stonewall using its power. And both sides have power. And so this ecosystem is, feels very, very secure, even after all that's happened. It, but it, it's also, it's a village of elite people of, I don't know, 10,000 people who all know each other. 
So they're very powerful, influential. Matt Goodwin's described that group, the new elite, at great length. Um, one reason I'd give for optimism you know, over the next decade or next two decades, say, is that if you think about woke as being like a religion, which is, again, not an original insight, but I think it's a, it's a fairly good comparison or analogy, to secure a new religion, there's one group above all others that you need to persuade and that's women mm. um and historically i mean look look to the 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 christianization of of northern europe say strategic marriages of christian women to pagan petty kings for instance is one of the most effective ways of spreading christianity now obviously things don't work quite like that anymore but i still think it remains that 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 women have an influence here that is asymmetric and very important and i think it's it's noteworthy that the most active rebellion against this new religion is coming from women Hmm. and that there is a civil war among feminists and among women generally about particularly about about trans issues so Hmm. i think if the gender critical side of that civil war win and I do think the wind is in their sails now, increasingly, as we've seen in this case today, um, th- then I think there is hope. Mm. Uh, Mary Harrington has written uh, and spoken about this very eloquently, um, about the the class dynamic to this struggle um, within the feminist movement between upper-middle-class women um, who have a great interest in downplaying the differences between the sexes for professional reasons and so therefore it, it, it you know it's not such a big issue that a man wants to quote unquote live as a woman whereas if you're at the lower end of the socioeconomic um uh, if, if, if you're spectrum if you if you're if you're poorer right yeah. um it, it matters a great deal the mm. differences between the sexes and you're, you're more aware of of, of mm. those differences in your day-to-day life um, she makes that case more eloquently than I just have, but I, I think if if the if the second group win, mm. if the gender critical group win, um, then I think that that that's probably the decisive battle. I, I hope. I think that's a great insight. Um, I would even add to that, as well as women, we've talked about so far, and the t- first two items we've discussed today, we've talked about uh, the classroom. And we've talked about a charity for children. Now, both the the, the 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 key thing there is children. And I think if, as we are seeing, these um, this identitarian politics is affecting our children, and it becomes clear exactly how that's happening and the extent to which that's happening and the damage that is doing to our children, then, wow, that is jet fuel for all right-thinking mums and dads um to get involved and to take it seriously and to to say you know no no further thus far and no further um and when you combine that with your observation about how women have changed the world again and again and again well i imagine mothers are even within that within that group are even even more motivated to make sure that they win uh the, the war not just the battle but the war so you're right there is potentially there a lot of reason for hope um because if you go for the children you, you you're not going to, <laughs> that, that's not going to end well for you no 
It's not. And I, I think that's right. But in the meantime, um, you, you still have a situation where you can go to work and go and sit down for a training course and find that you are just being hectored about what your political views ought to be. So there, there's a lot of stuff still to get through. And as you know, Tom and many of our listeners will know, if, probably if they've been involved in cases where we've helped, um, we do get these situations very frequently where people contact us and say, well, I've been made to do training about whatever and the instructor's gone off on a complete tangent about how evil the Tories are and about a particular piece of legislation or lobbying us um, about a particular issue. So that's a a very frequent occurrence in in our casework. It's something people are always contacting us about. And I just think we need to keep hammering away at this issue and winning on a case by case basis. So the employers realize actually it's not, it's just not on to have your employees, um, hectored in that way and made to feel that it, that it's indecent to hold a, a, you know, dissenting view that the vast majority of people would agree with, or at least would tolerate. And it comes at a cost, doesn't it? As we've spoken before, this whistleblower at the NSPCC, you know, I imagine agonized over whether or not to whistleblow, um and um thank goodness they did you know thank goodness the the recording got made at the school you know, these things but they come at a cost my goodness me they come at a cost because they they disrupt people's lives they disrupt their jobs they disrupt their employment prospects they they can cost money in all sorts of different ways and it, and it's not for everyone so as, as we said before when people come to us we do quite regularly say you know is this a fight you want to have or do you want to do some you know just get back to your calm normal life and and we'll often encourage people that actually for them the best thing to do is to is to is to let the let the the moment pass and then get back to their to their life because that's the best thing for them their families their own health and all of that that kind of stuff so it's a really difficult one um because we do need brave people but it's not for everybody well, one thing we wanted to talk about, Ben, was um, a bit of so occasion. We have a bit of a deeper discussion, don't we, about um, ideas that may they link to free speech, and they're about free speech, and they link to the topics that we've been discussing today. Uh, but we like to have a little bit of a d- deeper discussion about some of the underni- underlying dynamics and threads and realities that that we're facing in this in this whole war battle, whatever we want to call it, um, that's going on. And uh, one of the one of the ideas that keeps cropping up, and I'm sure everyone listening is familiar with, is that of the fact checkers. So we know about um, they're they're on the BBC with their um, their new group, um, which I can't remember. I can't remember what it's called at the moment. But anyway, they've got a new group that does fact checking, and uh, YouTube does fact checking, and Facebook does fact checking, and Twitter does fact checking. Um, and I'm sure, like like me, a lot of the list, our listeners have got very frustrated with the fact checkers because they're often kind of either not quite right or missing the point, or they certainly seem to be coming from a particular political angle themselves. So then the question is, who's going to check the fact checkers? Um, but as I was pondering this a little bit more deeply, I thought about what the fact checkers are actually trying to do. Because in a sort of naive sense, a fact checker is obviously trying to equip listeners or people using their platform with the the facts so that they can persuade them so that they can push an argument in a particular direction or 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 whatever it may be but what's clear i think is that <laughs> oftentimes whether the fact checkers are right or wrong they don't 
actually change hearts and minds. They don't actually make an impact. So even if it's something really simple, like I'm a flat earther, and you give me all the facts that show me the world's a globe, or, or as good as a globe, I can still be a flat earther. Yeah, you can give me all those facts, but in my heart, I can still be evangelical for the, the earth is flat. And this get, raises this whole question of what does actually change people's minds? And we have all sorts of sort of psychological reasons for why facts alone don't change people's minds and evolutionary reasons why facts don't change people's minds because we are emotional beings. We often rationalize our position. We rationalize our tribe. Um, and I think one, one art, I've read a few articles. Uh, one article I read said that our ability to stick to our guns and to come to, to keep rewriting the narrative around us is in a sense like a psychological immune system. So I think this is a, a I think this is the real question, actually, Ben. We can argue about fact checkers and and whether they're right or wrong. But the real question is, how do you change people's minds? Because if we're going to uh, make it clear that free speech really matters, we need to think about how free speech fits into that whole process of changing people's minds. So that that was my question to you, Ben. I'd be interested in your thoughts. I do have more thoughts, but I'll pause there and 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 see what you might be be think be what that might have, how that might have resonated with you. One of the traditional classic liberal arguments for freedom of speech describes a marketplace of ideas and people um, as free agents, almost like blank slates, going and shopping in that marketplace, uh, finding the best possible ideas available for sale and um, and snapping them up. I've probably said that at some, some time or another myself. I'm not sure it actually stands up to scrutiny. Mm. I'm not sure that the marketplace of, of ideas actually works like that. I mean, I think there should be a marketplace of ideas, and I think people should be free to set up their stall there. That's the heart of what the FSU is about. Um, I'm just not actually sure that people arrive at that marketplace looking for the best possible idea, the best possible product. They've already got an idea in their mind of when of when they go shopping of what they want, right? Yeah. So I don't think the marketplace works in, in that way because I don't think human beings work in that way. Um, so I think actually the stronger argument for defending freedom of speech and small L liberalism is that people are, are never going to all win, of course, never all going to agree with each other and that there are going to be fundamental differences. And these differences, increasingly, there is scientific evidence showing that these differences are baked into our personalities, that mm. how you score on the big five personality traits. So that's agreeableness, conscientiousness, extroversion, emotional instability and openness that how you score on those five traits will determine your outlook, your philosophical inclinations, your political proclivities, and so on. And so you can't really help it if you have a preference for um, open borders or for closed borders, or if you, and so on. So how you score on openness, if you, if you, if you score very low on openness, you're not rated mm. in the psychological sense of being a very open person. I mean, that sounds pejorative. I, I don't think it should be taken in a pejorative way. I, I am, I would score low on openness. I'm quite sure. <laughs> Despite the fact you uh, help me record this podcast every week. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's high on agreeableness, Tom. Ah, um, <laughs> yeah, got it. So, Different categories. 
Yeah, so so all of these things are completely baked in. So no one arrives in the marketplace of ideas with a, with a with a blank slate view where they're just looking for the best possible thing. They've, we all have a, a preconceived idea of what we're looking for, um, and so the idea that debate changes people minds changes people's minds. Well, yes, sometimes it sometimes it does. There are some issues at which you you might not know enough about. So I don't know. You might not ha- you might not know enough about the causes of the First World War, and you might be open to having your mind changed about whether it was a good idea for Britain to be involved in the First World War. Right. So you might change your mind about that. But I think it's very unlikely that you could persuade somebody to change their mind on, on the spectrum of open versus closed borders, for instance, yeah. because I think that is something that is just so baked into your personality. I think that's I think that's quite interesting. I think. Um something that 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 makes me realize or sorry the reiterates for me is that it actually takes time to change people's minds because those inherent sort of personality traits are so embedded in who we are uh you at one end of the scale it might not be possible to change people's mind but on the other end i think it takes time for people to have their mind changed um and uh, and therefore the current craziness of social media the craziness of just uh, the interviews on the TV is a really good example. I get so frustrated how often when we look at interviews on whatever channel it is, the interviewer is saying all the time, we don't have much time. We don't have much time. We don't yeah. have much time. So you really are just getting into a debate. You're just getting into, and it's always a sort of one side at one extreme, the other side at the other extreme. But if we're really serious about thinking as a society, if we're really serious about going deeper into what, what what our cultural mores are, then we need time. And the old long-form interview, the old, um, uh, I can't remember the names of the various people from the 1980s, where you would, they would sit down and Walden, Walden was, was a good one. So Robin Day, where they'd sit down and really take time with their guest to explore where their opinion had come from, why they thought what they did, what that would mean for the country if it was a political uh, guest, was 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 change. I do believe it changed minds, or at least it, it put people on different tracks towards changing their minds. So I think that um, is a really good point about sort of those traits. But I wouldn't be too negative that you can't change people's minds, but it does take time, and and therefore it can get very dispiriting when people don't. Because we, if we are serious about getting free speech back onto the agenda in the whole country, there's a whole generation of people who are suspicious of free speech. We've got to change their minds. So we shouldn't get too dis, dis, disturbed if it's taking longer than we might expect. I think in a way that brings us back to some of the stuff we were talking about at the top of this episode and the deficiencies of legacy media. Um, and so you're right. If you, if you do a TV or radio interview, you basically get to say three things. And this is why politicians invariably do that infuriating thing of saying, well, the real, real issue is this, or, well, why don't we do, you know, blah, 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 blah. And the, the reason you have to do that, the reason you're trained to do that if you do lots of media is because you've only got three chances to speak probably in an interview that's five or six minutes long, which is about standard. And so it, it, you get this exactly what you've just described as, as a viewer, you get a very frustrating experience. But that's the legacy media. And if someone like, I don't know, um, William Buckley were alive now, he'd be a YouTuber. He'd, he'd be on trigonometry. He'd be, he'd be doing hour-long, long-form interviews um, and wouldn't be anywhere near yeah. a TV studio. Yeah. So I think there is, 
this is another crumb of comfort I, I'll, I'll give you, Tom. Um, <laughs> another reason I'm optimistic is that, that there is there has been this resurrection of, of that form, that there is a demand yeah. for that. And you see it in podcasts as well, you of do. course, and that's the most obvious place where that exists. And um, one of my favourite podcasts to listen to is, I think, now one of the most popular or the most popular um, history podcast um, in the world is The Rest is History. Yeah. And I read in the, I think it was the Sunday Times a weekend ago or something like that, um, that the majority of their audience is under 35. And so, yeah, you know, there is a demand. There absolutely is a demand. It's just, it's not going to be filled in in the scheduling of a 24-hour news channel. Um, and so that that does offer scope for for changing people's minds or at least educating people about what the arguments are and then their natural proclivities will lead them one way or the other, I suspect. Not wanting to be a negative Nelly though, Ben, because I agree that the long-form interview has made a comeback in podcasts and such like. However, the trouble is the algorithm, whatever platform you may be on, points you towards things that would tend to reconfirm you in what you already think. So you're not all watching. Yep. You know, the country isn't sitting back and watching the podcast by Jordan Peterson or whatever it is. People who like Jordan Peterson, people the algorithm thinks would like Jordan Peterson, are listening to Jordan Peterson. People who like Douglas Murray are listening to Douglas Murray. And it would be the same, you know, Owen Jones on the other side, or whoever it may be, people who like Owen Jones are listening to Owen Jones and, and therefore going further down that route. So that fragmentation that comes with the social media is the is the kind of the balance to that to that argument. But I'd rather have it than not. I'd rather like the fact that we, we've got the, the long-form um, ideas coming back than not. Is that echo chamber algorithm argument overstated, though? Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, two, two or three generations ago, I, I can't imagine that my Daily Mail reading grandparents would have ever picked up The Observer. I mean, yeah. I, it, there wasn't yeah. an algorithm at play there, but yeah. basically the same process is going on. But remember the letters. I always love the letters in the Times or the letters in the Telegraph. And the editor of the Telegraph and the editor of the Times were very important people because they would always put one side of the argument in one one letter yeah. and then the completely opposite side of the argument in the next letter. And they'd also have gone through all the different letters that had been sent in by readers and picked out the most eloquent, well-written, most succinct points well-made. And I always found the letters page to be the most fascinating page to read in a newspaper because you really sense that you were in a in a conversation uh with a with a genuine member of the public and getting both sides of that conversation you know twitter doesn't feel like that twitter doesn't. <laughs> but I, one other thing i will say and, and this is um a sparkle of hope ben to build on your sparkle of hope i was going back to january 2023 to constantin kissin's oxford union address it went viral mm. Um, when they were talking about, and I can't remember what the exact um, what the exact title of the debate was, but I went back and I watched that clip because um, it it was a fascinating um, clip about how people's minds maybe not changed, but in the Oxford Union, I think a lot of people came out at the end and were quite surprised at how compelling Constantine Kissin had been in what he'd said as he was sort of saying the other argument to to, to wokeism and saying the damage that wokeism would do. So that was a, a, a positive thing. I was thinking, well, why was it that it went viral? Why was it that it was able to be so attractive to the listeners? And I thought there were a few things that occurred to me. First of all, it had emotional conviction. You could hear it in his voice. He meant what he was saying. There was no, there was no pretense in what he was saying. Secondly, there was a disarming honesty to it. 
he talks a little bit about his family. He talks about his his children. He talks about and and it's disarming at times because he's quite open and along with that emotional conviction. Thirdly, he adds a bit of comedy in it. He doesn't make it too serious. You, you, people laugh along at, at, at points. Fourthly, there's a surprising perspective. So instead of talking about, I don't believe in, you know, getting terrified about the climate, he goes and talks about China and talks through, or, or Russia, where he grew up in Siberia, he talks through someone who's poor and what their life is really like. Uh, fifthly, he gives some historical context. So he, he, he provides a comparison with... Um, you know where things have come from and where they're going, but and the last one that struck me that I think is really really important. He tells a story, and I've always believed in telling a story. If you if you want to get people's attention and you want to make people listen, um, it's the opposite of the PowerPoint slide that destroys everyone's life in 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 companies. Tell them a story, and I always talk about fire. You know, fire is great for cooking on. But it's also great for sitting around and sharing stories about the day, hopes about tomorrow. And I feel that it almost goes back to our caveman days where you sit around and you tell the stories and the children listen with huge sort of saucer eyes and uh, the wise people tell their story and everyone, the adults laugh. And I think that he captures that spirit as well. And, And he persuades. There's no doubt he persuades. So there's an art to it. People, some people have it, some people don't. But I think, uh, my goodness me, I want to return to this, Ben. I really want to return to it because it's such a yeah. rich vein. Uh, that, I mean, that is a wonderful speech. If you've, if you've not listened to that, I suspect most people will have done uh, listening to us. But go on YouTube and watch it. It's a fantastic piece of rhetoric. And mm. it, I think, I mean, I, I agree. I'm already pre-configured to agree with him, so I find it very persuasive. But I hope what you're saying, Tom, is right, that people who are not, pre-configured to uh to agree with that perspective that it did give those people um pause and and perhaps even change some minds um i think it would have stayed with them you, you remember I, I, yeah. I distinctly remember you saying uh, about richard nixon in 1974 five six going to the oxford uh, yeah union. at some point in the 70s yeah and he yeah. went to the oxford union and you made the point well wouldn't you go whether you agree yeah. with him or you don't agree with him, wouldn't you go? Because it stays with you. You can say to your grandchildren, I was there. And and so again, maybe people weren't persuaded by Constantine, but I think they will remember it and they will say to their friends, uh, and when the time comes, maybe even their, their children, I was there, I remember that. I remember how compelling it was. And for these reasons, I then agreed with him or for these reasons, I did disagreed with him. Uh, they so might at the very at the very least realize there is another perspective even if it's one they don't share um that people who don't agree with them are worth and worthy of being treated with respect and that um people do have decent reasons for holding contrary views so even if you don't change someone's mind i mean that's quite an ambitious target to change somebody's mind is a very difficult thing to do and in some cases i think it's impossible um but at the very least you can build a culture of of tolerance and an awareness that people can have disagreements in good faith and that is obviously something that is desperately lacking in our discourse at this particular cultural moment it's very fraught very very fraught um which brings us on to the last topic of today and it's very closely related to to what we just talked about about how we change minds and fact checking in fact um so some news hot off the press is that in america 
the House, which is Congress, has has just passed a, a rule that bans the Pentagon from contracting with organizations that seek to rate or to police news sites, including groups accused of un- unfairly targeting conser- conservatives. Um, so, yeah, this is this is this is really interesting because we know that a lot of these fact-checking organizations or disinformation, anti-disinformation organizations have been getting public money in both the US and the UK. For example, we spoke about the Global Disinformation Index a few episodes ago and the fact that £2.5 million have been spent by our government to support that organization, where it turned out that we looked at the sort of the league table of of what they were saying was full of disinformation. It was mainly on the right. And we looked at the league table of what wasn't, what was more trustworthy according to the GDI, and it was mainly people on the left. And and so that amount of money, and we talked about in the episode, we talked about always follow the money, follow the money, follow the money. Well, this is in the US. I think it, I think it's some good news, and it's saying, no, you, you anti-disinformation organizations, you need to step away from uh, public money. Uh, you're not going to get it uh, in the way that you have so far. And what I would love to see of course first of all, I'd like to see, make sure to see how this is implemented because we've learned not to not to prejudge too much or to get too pessimistic or too optimistic until we see how things play out in practice um however i think that is uh good news in 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 stopping these organizations who really are in their own way censoring stopping them from getting public money and it would be great to see something similar happening in the uk so a little bit of good news there, I think, Ben. One of the uh, quite amusing ways in which disinformation is being uh, tackled on Twitter at the moment uh, is uh, there was a good case of this where Sadiq Khan had posted a, a tweet, uh, which I'm just trying to find what I'm speaking, so I'm filibustering you while I try and find this this tweet so that I, so that I can quote it verbatim. If I had and Twitter, I, feared... I would help you, Ben, but as you know, yeah. I, I, I barely know how to... <laughs> Use the and internet. I, <laughs> I fear I'm 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 running out of time, so I'm going to keep talking. I'm going to keep talking. We may have to rely on the editor um, as uh, as this. No, right here we go. Here we go. Right there we are. No need for editing. So Sadiq Khan had tweeted: um, "This city was built by migrants, by refugees, in the face of hostile, draconian, and immoral immigration policies, and so on and so on." Um, and there was a big backlash to the claim that the city was built by migrants. Right. So mm. I think if, if, he'd, if he'd said migrants, refugees have made a huge contribution to London over the 20th mm. century or whatever. Or, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, fine. That's, I did, I, that's know, fine. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, but the claim that, and this is a direct quote, this city was built by migrants, <laughs> by refugees, <laughs> is something that is obviously complete nonsense. So uh, you can now add community notes on Twitter. So uh, in the verbiage of Twitter, readers can add context uh, to tweets from politicians where, where they've made false claims. Because they and get so, upvoted, so, Ben, is that right? So, <laughs> yeah, so, it has to yeah, be, so it has to be agreed by the community that that's yeah. a good note. So someone has pointed out that uh, the City of London was, was founded around the year 50 AD. Uh, and uh, it was not, in fact, built by migrants or refugees, which would be a very strange way of describing the Roman army. Um, so it, it, that, that's quite fun. That's quite fun, I think. Yeah. I quite like that. That uh, you know, Because you can see what he's doing. He's just trying to make one of these sort of um, 
you know, very inclusive, cuddly sounding uh, statements. He's gone far over the top and, yeah. and has then said something that is completely factually incorrect. Um, but, so, so that's quite nice. About fact-checking, I thought. A thousand years of history and thrown it in the bin. Um, 2,000 years. Sorry. <laughs> I did my maths wrong there, Ben. You've been fact-checked. <laughs> Thank you. Hashtag fact-checked. <laughs> Whatever a hashtag is. <laughs> But anyway, shall we, shall we end by just reminding, I'll just remind people of an upcoming event on the 5th of July. We've got um, an in-person event with uh, um, Sharon Davies on, uh, talking about unfair, her new book. It's a, it's a, it's a book launch. Uh, it's called Unfair Play, The Battle for Women's Sport and Against Attempts to Silence Its Champions. Um, and so there's uh, an opportunity to go to our website and uh, sign up for that event. That'll be a great event, a really important and very closely related to what we've been talking about today, a really important book that, that Sharon Davis, she's a really important voice um, in all of this. So so do, do, do go and seek that out on our website. Um, and as a reminder, uh, membership of the new of the Free Free Speech Union starts uh, on a monthly basis at two pounds forty nine a month. So um, we are very good value for money, I believe. So go go to our website and sign up if you're not already a member. Um, but have you got anything to add, Ben? Well, whatever your view about the issues we've been talking about that have come up in this episode, we will defend your right to hold and express those opinions. So if you if you want to mm. contact us and say, I've been punished for holding the blank slate view of human nature uh, by my employer, uh, we'll assist you. I think it's quite unlikely that we'll have such a case, but maybe we will. All views welcome. Yeah. Well, thank you everyone for listening and have a good week. And we will be back next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.